With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, this is Steve Brun, and you are listening to the GeekCast Radio Network. Hello and welcome to Cinema Geeks as we continue our Quentin Tarantino retrospective. Today we are going to review Quentin Tarantino's, actually technically right now, his latest film, Django Unchained. But before we get to our review, let's go over who's here. You have me, of course, Movie Revolt Dan. And joining me, as always, is Kevin Optimusolo. How's it going, man? It's going great, man. We are getting down to the nitty-gritty. Uh, our last movie before we get to our review. I can't believe we've already gone through his career a lot quicker than he did to make them all, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it seemed like this was going to be... Uh, at first, I mean, you think about talking about however many movies this is. What is this? Uh, this is the eighth movie, I guess, technically. Yeah. yeah, and it seems like that would take a while, but it seems like we've just started it like yesterday. <laughs> so <laughs> we're through it already. So that yeah. was uh, impressive. Yeah, very nice, very nice. If this is the first time joining us, this is our Quentin Tarantino retrospective, and we have, at this point, have reviewed every Quentin Tarantino movie, starting at Reservoir Dogs and coming up to Django Unchained, so make sure to check those out. I'd like to start each of these with a question, and I know Django Unchained was one of the few films we went into this that you saw already, and they stay a lot of times with Quentin Tarantino movies. They're ones you kind of have to watch more than once, and I would argue Django Unchained is probably the best example of that mainly because in the you know the last act it takes a drastic turn and I know for some people that turn was a little bit too sharp for them and on rewatch it maybe became better or maybe on rewatch it became even more apparent that you're you're watching movies that maybe didn't correspond with one another so knowing this is your second time going into this this is the last week we talked about cohesion do you feel that cohesion is greater, or do you feel watching it a second time, you do seem to notice just how off the rails technically it might get at the last 30 minutes or so? Uh, it's a good question, actually. Uh, probably a perfect question for this film specifically, like you said. And I got to admit, my experience with Django Unchained, maybe not to the level, the same level that you talked about last week. But my first viewing of Django Unchained had some similarities and some connections with your first viewing of Inglorious Bastards. I don't think it was quite to that same level. I didn't uh, 
probably have a, as big of a distaste for it as you did in your first viewing of Inglorious Bastards, but I did have a problem with parts of the that last act the first time I watched it. But let me add the little asterisk with that, that my problem was not with the cohesion or not with the differences that you feel from the last act compared to the other ones. It wasn't as far as it feeling like two films or anything like that. My issue the first time watching it with the last act was more so specific plot choices or decisions that were made with characters or with little parts of the story and not so much the overall feeling. But uh, like you said, the second watch sometimes can change that. And I didn't nearly have as big of an issue with the next watch uh, of that and especially viewing the last act specifically. Um, so I never had an issue with it from a cohesion standpoint or from a, you know, kind of continuity as far as the, the feel and the look and the atmosphere of the film. Um, but the first time I did question, like I said, and we'll get into it more specifically, some of the individual decisions in the story. Um, and I still might, it still might not have been what I would have chosen, but I didn't. It didn't affect me in a negative way like it did the first time. So it was a it was a better experience the on the rewatch. I don't know. What about you? It, I would say the the first time I watched it, it, it was rather shocking because it's like, wow, this is really Tarantino <laughs> going all out violence wise. Because at this point, it was it was kind of laid back. I mean, there was certain certainly violence to it, no doubt. But right. in that last act, it's like I think he used as many squibs as possible when it came to there was like the violence almost to a comedic level but we watching I, this is actually i saw this movie in theaters three times the watched it one time and then a friend wanted to see it so i saw it again and then the third time was when i do the best picture showcase so it was included in that as well so and every time i've watched it that that jump has become less and less shocking or jarring. It, it all kind of makes sense more and more i mean partially is that i know it's coming but i think it you kind of see the, the buildup. And I think what, what, what really ends up working for me and why it, I don't have maybe the problems with some people doing this is I just adore nearly every musical choice that <laughs> Tarantino has in this. I know he's known for that, but I would argue that this may be his best use of music ever uh, in, in this film. And I, I know that's a lofty acclimate to give to something, but just the eclectic choices he makes that so many people have tried to do the using modern music in a period piece mm -hmm. and it often never works. Be and it, I think why it tends to not work is because they use it, they use modern music and then the characters themselves are also modern the way they talk. It doesn't feel all the time, but with this very much of the time, it's for whatever reason it does. And plus there's not just one type of, it's not just all rock. It's there's hip hop, rock, you know, classic rock to it. Just Western, the, yeah, Western. There, it's a unique uh, blend, and it, it just—I I don't know. Like, and two Tarantino, or when he's doing the scenes, he's playing the music to go along with it, so it all flows. It has, it does have that music video quality, which is usually a negative, but in this, it works. And I don't know. I, I, that's to me is what I love most about this. Walking out, I just, especially like the John Legend song at the end. It just—I don't know. There's, it just gives it an energy that really makes it work for me. Yeah, I have music written down um, at least three times in my notes for this one as well. Um, I had music written down a lot for, I believe it was Inglorious Bastards as well. But yeah, that's one of the first things I wrote down about this film. And then one of the last things I wrote down about it as well. So I, I'm right with you with, with the music as well. I thought it was uh, very well handled in this film. And it was one of those where 
it it both blended into the movie so it wasn't taking you away from it or it wasn't taking you out of the moment but at the same time still memorable enough that even though it was blending into the film you still remembered what was playing at what point and and this that and the other so i mean i I thought it was a very he showed a lot of finesse and craft with how and and how he put it in and where he put it in and and all that so yeah this is one i don't own a lot of soundtracks but this is actually one soundtrack i own largely because of the john london song is is it only can be gone on the django unchained uh soundtrack but uh, okay yeah but I, i do uh i do quite enjoy the soundtrack overall Interesting that uh, along with the music, since we're talking about it, I was trying to do my my research for the for the episode and and try to find as much information, trivia, et cetera, uh, about the film. And I actually, the composer said he would probably never collaborate with Tarantino again after this film. He was quoted as saying he didn't like the way the writer and director places music in his films without coherence and never giving enough time. I can kind of see that because he does like he does jump from one song to the next a lot in this more so probably than ever. But I I, I do enjoy it. But I can see as a composer why that one might drive you nuts because it's like like he doesn't give anything like time to kind of breathe. <laughs> he kind of just goes from one to the next. The the interesting thing about that was the composer had already worked with Tarantino on three other movies. So yeah, I, I don't know if this was just the the straw that broke the camel's back and he didn't t- bind on the other films or what. But like I said, I think it all worked though with what he was doing here. But I, I can see where, like you said, where he's coming from. But um, just from a fan's perspective and a you know a film goer, I think it works for me for the experience. Yeah, and I think he's actually helping out, I believe, with it as well. So maybe he, he must not have minded it so bad. <laughs> yeah, because then he got the check. He's like, "Oh, never mind." <laughs> he's like, "I'll do this again." <laughs> I feel I feel perfectly fine with this. But up to this point, you know, this is Tarantino's first venture into into the genre of western. You know, he's done a lot, obviously, crime, kung fu. You know, to the Grindhouse movies. Last time we talked about, you know, his World War II epic. Uh, I mean, going into this, are you a fan of the Western genre? Is, is it one you kind of are limited on? Like, Because I know that in itself can uh, skew your opinion one way or another. It's so weird. This is like one of the weirdest parts of probably my my film history of, of watching films, etc. Western is probably one of my favorite genres of just anything. But for some reason, I just have not watched a lot of westerns like it makes absolutely no sense i was a huge fan of anything western on tv when i was a kid any like anything that was based in a, in a western uh setting time period etc i would watch any of it but there are so many old classic westerns that i have not seen like I, I do remember growing up and seeing some of the older stuff uh you know my mom was a big fan of the of westerns so I, I was exposed to a little of it but i have hardly ever seen any of the john wayne films and there's there's some big old uh, blank spaces in 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 western genre like kind of classic films that i haven't seen i've seen more most of the recent ones you know since since i was born i've seen most of the stuff that's come out but i'm a huge fan of western tv stuff i'm a huge fan of western movies i'm a huge fan of that time period just as a history person so so i do enjoy the genre i just don't know why i have not seen more westerns in general funny because i'm not that far off with you i've watched some classic westerns there's a huge amount i haven't like like john Ford's catalog i mean he's made a trillion movies but there's a lot there's so many westerns there are i mean people complain about superhero movies but there's like a western every day (laughs) back in the day when they made like a trillion movies a year now according to tarantino though this is not he doesn't call this a western yeah a southern if i'm not (laughs) mistaken 
it's, it's Tarantino being Tarantino. It's right. like, all right, all right. I get you. I get <laughs> Keep you. telling yourself that. <laughs> but, I mean, those mountains that they're in are not from the south. I don't know what's... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. But, no. I mean, I mean, partially, yes, it does take place in the south. But... Uh, no, but I was I was all about this as as a genre for him to go into, and that's yeah. one of the reasons why I'm so excited about the Hateful Eight was because of I th- I think it was an interesting blend. You know, you you often find people having those conversations about uh, I've seen it on a few different podcasts or probably on internet pages, you know, here and there. But you know, if you could take some director and take them out of their regular thing and have them do some other genre and you'll hear people say you know oh i'd love to see such and such do a superhero film or i'd love to see you know such and such do a horror film or whatever it's like you don't get that with tarantino because he already has done like every other genre it seems like but yeah uh, and and even within his genre there are genre i mean genre elements (laughs) like i mean kill bill has a lot of western influence within itself and i mean this too has a lot of influences from like black exploitation as well it's like a black exploitation within a western film so like he he can't contain himself to one genre but if if he had not done all those genres and if that's not kind of what he was known for was bouncing from here to there uh this would have been like if i was to have that conversation like before this was ever an idea that i can i can see myself saying oh i'd love to see tarantino do a western yeah Uh, yeah. just because it seems like it would be a cool matchup yeah yeah and i i agree and um, you know, my Western background is similar to yours. I like my favorite westerns are like Once Upon a Time in the West is probably all time favorite. Like, but there's a huge amount I haven't yet to see, and uh, I hope to I hope to catch up with more. But I, I guess I just have to be in the mood for a western. You know, like there's right. tend to be a lot longer. They're slower, so it's hard to get in, get in the right mindset to, to watch them. And growing up, my dad was like into Roy Rogers and stuff like that, so I saw a lot <laughs> of that type of stuff. So, which I is, think I've been to the Roy Rogers Museum. Wow, yeah, my dad. I couldn't tell you where it is, but I think it's in Oklahoma. But I probably (laughs) sounds about right. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm sure there's multiple ones, and that might be one of them. But but we we see a lot of like returning elements here, and uh, one of the biggest, of course, is Christoph Waltz, and (laughs) you know he he became huge with with of course uh, Glorious Bastards last time, and here he's coming again. And one thing I hear a lot of people saying is that like they feel he's playing kind of like the same character. And while I kind of can see that, I, I feel like there are certain similarities, but I feel like they're also vastly different. I don't know how you feel about his performance in this compared to Inglorious Masters. I think they're both great, but do you feel there's like, the similarities are as apparent as people have made them out to be? I don't think so. I think it's easy to say that about a lot of different people just because they can't escape who they are. You know, I mean, they're going to have some of the same mannerisms. They're going to have some similarities from character to character. But I don't remember when I saw this the first time thinking that it was any type of carbon copy of what we saw in Inglorious Bastards. To me, this character had so many more... I guess you wouldn't say like deeper elements to it or more sides to it, but it has a completely different feel because... In Inglorious Bastards, I think it's harder to find the. I think if you were trying to define, which it's hard to do in Tarantino films, so, you know, someone as a good guy or a bad guy. I mean, he's clearly more of a, a bad character in that film, where I always viewed him as, you know, obviously a good character in this film, and he, he has a lot more of a moral compass in this film. So I, I didn't. I don't necessarily see outside of it's the same person playing it and there's going to be, you can't escape having some similarities. I don't, I don't quite see that myself. I don't know. What about you? I mean, I, I think there are certain mannerisms and kind of the way each may be similar, you know, the enunciates everything and 
he's a showman similar to his previous character. But I, I think overall though, it, they are two very opposite. They're right. they're very opposite in just their, you know, their execution because you know Schultz is so kind hearted and something about him just feels like warm. I guess, and I don't get that with. Uh... Well, and the other thing is, even in their dialogue, it's different. Like, yeah. The in Inglorious Bastards, there's a lot more veil to what he's saying. There's a lot more mystery as far as he's, you know, kind of beating around and, and kind of doing the whole investigative thing. Whereas in this one, it's it's a lot more matter of fact. Like, yeah, he, he has a point of what he's going to go across and he comes right out and is very blunt about whatever he's saying. And I, and I feel like with Inglorious Bastards, there's there's also like a viciousness to what he's doing or right. like it feels like put on and you're just waiting for like there's that like a veil of kind of politeness but you think behind that veil is a very vicious person but this here it's the opposite he just feels so welcoming and like it just seems like everything he does is just like well this is i want to be this guy's friend i just want to hang out with him (laughs) he's like the kindest dentist ever that (laughs) and he's one that kills people outside of the whole killing people and that kind (laughs) i mean there's a lot of good redeeming qualities about this character so polite and like takes it's like you know he asks permission for everything before it's just i don't know i that's too like just he's a big part of the comedy in this and I, I, there's a lot of comedic moments in a lot of Tarantino films, but to me, this has some of some of the funniest. I would say uh, this might not. I mean, I know it's kind of getting into something else, and maybe we'll get more into it later. But this going with the humor and especially with Christoph Waltz's character, we might not get like the the long extended dialogue pieces like we have in some of the other films. But there is so many short bursts of it that it's just the. The humor, especially from him, is like almost every every time he opens his mouth, you're waiting for something that's going to entertain you or be funny or be just like jaw dropping or whatever. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it's a different type of dialogue, but I think it's super effective as far as being consistent and constant throughout the film. So I like that about him. Yeah, there's there's like a specific timing all, all, all together. One moment that like you said, like, that's really short and sweet is one of the first plantations they do to get the Brittle Brothers. And there's that back and forth with... Uh, I can't think of it. Don Johnson's character. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're asking, like, how they should treat uh, Django. And it's like, should I treat him like he's white? And he's like, no. <laughs> just the how, just the way he, he says it and the reaction. And it's just, it. I, I, if I, I laugh at that every time just because it's like, it's timed so well. It's just, which is interesting because this is the first time he's making a movie without his editor that he's used previously because she's unfortunately passed away. But I don't, I never saw any difference. I, I feel like editing is always on point just like it was i mean it's not uh you know it's linear with the lucky land slots you can get lucky just about anywhere this is your captain speaking uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky no no nothing like that it's just these cash prizes add up quick so i suggest you sit back keep your tray table upright and start getting lucky play for free at luckylandslots.com are you feeling lucky no purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? 
I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At ChumbaCasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Storytelling again, but overall, though, I just feel like it, it fits together pretty well. Well, and I think one of the probably the the most extended thing that we get as far as dialogue piece with Dr. Schultz that I, I'm thinking of. I mean, I might be missing one off the top of my head, but the whole back and forth that he does with Calvin Candy on D'Artagnan and uh, Alexander Dumas. And when he's going, you know, he's going into the name of the slave, which was D'Artagnan and wondering what Dumas would make all of all of this and candy's so confused <laughs> and he's he does that whole thing about oh his you know his approval would would be dubi- a dubious proposition at best <laughs> he's like trying to figure out what's going on and he's like alexander dumas was black <laughs> like <laughs> i love that whole bit but i mean you you couple that with some real quick stuff that you get a, a lot of times like and it's not just uh with christoph waltz obviously we'll get into django a little bit too but I remember uh, quite a few quick lines where he's talking about uh, the the bounty hunting business with Django, you know, the proposition of to Django killing white people and getting paid for it. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> but yeah, there's a, there's a lot of them between both him and Django that are just really keep the humor going. Yeah. And I, I agree. There's a, and even especially the, probably the most scene that's obviously purposely comedic is that of the, like the pseudo KKK scene with the hoods. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> that scene cracks me up from beginning to end. I forgot when I was watching this the second time that Jonah Hill was in this. Yeah. <laughs> I just, he shows up like that. And then just that whole thing. And with the guy leaving because his wife's holes weren't in the right <laughs> spot. It's just that, that has me in stitches every time. Yeah, yeah. But next time. Right. <laughs> next time. <laughs> but yeah. I think Django too. I mean, obviously Christoph Waltz probably gets the most credit for a lot of the humor and a lot of the lines, but Django has some cool stuff. Like, especially when he's dealing with some of the other people outside of not Calvin Candy, not Schultz, but some of the other stuff, like, where the one person's trying to call him out on on how many shots he had in his gun. Yeah, <laughs> he's like, I count six shots, and he's like, I count two guns, <laughs> and pulls out a second gun. Or uh, when he's chained up and walking, or I don't even think he's chained up at that point. But when he's walking with Billy Crash, and uh, he, Billy Crash is like, I'm gonna go walking in the moonlight with you, and he's like, You want to hold my hand? <laughs> just like <laughs> every every time was just perfect. I love the dialogue in this film. It just accents one of obviously Tarantino's. Uh, themes that we've had throughout all of these films but since we're starting to mention and since i've started to mention a couple of the other characters i think that goes back to another trend that we saw throughout all of these films in the retrospective and that is obviously tarantino's ability to cast both just regular casting and in the writing of certain characters with certain actors in mind and uh, obviously there's a lot of examples here in Django unchained of that i think specifically one that comes to mind is like leonardo dicaprio and right. it's a role that I, that has similarities to what DiCaprio does, but I do feel like it's one of his his better performances. It's there's a certain like likable quality that DiCaprio has, but there's also there's something about him that can turn you the, the wrong way, and two, just like his like ability to explode. So I, I do feel like he gets <laughs> something out of I feel like he gets something out of DiCaprio that I don't think any director has. And then you have that infamous scene, that infamous scene where he 
I guess cuts his hand in real life on uh, when he cracks his skull, and then I didn't realize when he rubs his hand on Kerry Washington's face <laughs> that that was his real blood. Which I'm like, I get method acting, but if I'm on that, I'm like, no, like that's not happening. At I'm that like, point, if I'm Kerry Washington, I'm like, what the hell did you just do? <laughs> like, I don't can know. I get so, can I get my lawyer in here? <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure you just committed a hate crime. I'm <laughs> yeah. Get but, an AIDS test real quick. This guy sleeps with yeah. like pyramids of women i don't think this is okay exactly i mean <laughs> i i, I mean I, I, some of the other casting like i mentioned with uh don johnson i know like i think originally that was supposed to be mel gibson i forget there was a huge or kurt russell was supposed to be in this originally too and kevin costner uh, was one of them that was going to yeah. be in it originally too there was a lot of people that uh were cast that had scheduling conflicts and and this that and the other because i there was even parts like separate characters that didn't even make the final film joseph gordon levitt sasha baron cohen you talked about Kurt Russell, Kevin Costner. So, I mean, there's a lot of people that he had in mind with something that didn't work. But uh, the two that I think he most wrote stuff for, well, three, I would say would obviously be three of the leads there. You have Leonardo, Christoph Waltz, and Samuel L. Jackson, which are all, basically those roles were all written for him, even if uh, Christoph Waltz turned him down the first time. Um, yeah, and I know originally Django was supposed to be Will Smith. Could yeah, you, Django could, was the one that he wrote with somebody else in mind. Yeah, could you see Will Smith in the role of Django? Because I don't think I can. And and it's funny because Will Smith's like reason for turning it down is so ridiculous. Like it had something to do with the fact that in whatever he read or whatever script or whatever, however it was pitched to him, unless and, and this is just going off of internet stuff, so it could be completely false. But uh, according to the one source I read, it seemed like Smith turned it down because he wasn't billed as the leading person. Yeah, he felt that Jenga wasn't the leading character, so That's he didn't want bizarre. it. Bizarre. Which is like, yeah, why would? Because that works so well with After Earth. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know if I can see Will Smith. And it's interesting, all the other names that they threw out there, Terrence Howard, Chris Tucker, Idris Elba. Man, I, after seeing it, I can't picture anybody but Jamie Foxx, but that's kind of how movies are a lot. Once you see yeah. that character, that's who it becomes. So it's hard to see it as anybody else. I mean, I can see Will Smith doing all the the costume and the clothing choices because he's he can he could have pulled all that crazy stuff off that Jamie Foxx did as well. But I just can't picture him playing that role to the to the point that Jamie Foxx did. Going off that, though, Will Smith saying that Jenga wasn't the main character, do you feel like, though, with someone and so many of these other characters, that even though it's called Jenga Unchained, that Jenga kind of gets lost at all in this? That- no. I, I don't understand. Why, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, I wasn't sure if how what he read or how he figured that out. I mean, first of all, it's the name of the movie. So you would think uh, before, you know, you've made the movie that if you're getting cast as the person that is in the title, that that's probably a lead role. And he's also the constant. He's from the beginning scene to the end scene. Like he's I don't know how you say this isn't his story, you know, as far as like dialogue and screen time. I mean, I guess Christoph Waltz gets a lot. And Leonardo DiCaprio is obviously a, a leading person in most movies he's in. But I don't see how you can say this movie is more about anybody outside of Django. Yeah, I, I agree. It's his story. I would say, though, that the one knock you can give it is not in the sense of knock, but with so many other characters, like, I don't think Django as a character has, like, the personality that puts him in the forefront, like, as the other characters, something like Christoph Waltz and Calvin Kennedy. They're really big and large personality-wise, right. and Django's more reserved, which I don't think is a bad thing. I think it it's very much in line with many of the Western characters, you know, from the man with no name and, you know, things like that, where you have that strong kind of silent type picking and choosing when they're saying things and having mm-hmm. a certain certain way about them. So I think but as a performance, it may not be as dynamic as the other characters, but I think 
it works and it, it fits within the story itself because it, it, it like you said, it is his story, but I think he's kind of the chaos is going around him where, where he is just focused on this one, one thing he wants to get accomplished. Right. No, I, I completely couldn't see that. Also, it is the first time, uh, apparently in 16 years at this point, that DiCaprio did not get top billing in a film. So <laughs> you got that going for you. But, um, <laughs> um, is there any character that you feel like didn't work as far as the actor, actress, the performance, something that, that fell flat for you compared to something else? Um, and to go along with that, I want to get a little bit more into both Leonardo DiCaprio and Samuel L. Jackson and your thoughts on those characters overall, because I think... I think sometimes people can have a... I've heard more people have issues with Samuel L. Jackson, whether they say he's always playing the same character or whether they say it's too over the top or it's not done in a believable manner. I've I've heard that kind of critique on um, Samuel L. Jackson. At the same time, you almost never hear that with Leonardo DiCaprio. It seems like no matter what he does, everybody loves it no matter what. And I'll get more into my thoughts on both of them. But uh, first, you know, like I said, did anybody fall flat for you? And then what's your opinion of both DiCaprio and Samuel L. Jackson's performance? <laughs> well, if anyone falls flat, it probably would be Quentin Tarantino. And oh, God. <laughs> which is, I forgot about that. I tried to put that out of my head. Which is just awful. Like, he just don't. Just, and why give yourself an Australian accent? Like, I know. I, I, all I wrote was Tarantino is so bad. <laughs> it's just, especially when it's that late in the movie. It, I, I you know I, I read something where it's like they were going to have someone else and they they couldn't like they had to drop out. I think, but still, there's there's tons of actors out there that would do drop anything to work in a Tarantino movie. So you don't need to. Oh man, that's he's just so bad. I mean, it is kind of funny to see him get ex- like him like literally explode in this film. But it's hard to say. But there are elements of. Kerry Washington's character, mostly near the end, the one scene that kind of comes to mind is actually the very end when she's like, uh, that seems really kind of cutesy against her character, which is like yeah. she like holds her ears really weird and like has a weird look on her face that always that always kind of bugged me because it just seems kind of out of character from everything we saw to her. It, up to that yeah, point. It seemed, it's like it's like she's playing a part while she's in the house and doing all these other stuff and all the years before when she was seen like in the flashbacks with Django. But then all of a sudden when she's like away, she like turns into like this modern person that's yeah. giggly and laughy. And, you know, I, don't, <laughs> that, I agree. That was a little I felt like that was a little weird. Uh, no one else really comes to mind. The, the touch on the Leonardo and and um, Samuel L. Jackson. I, to me, like up to this point, like you know, Samuel L. Jackson was doing a lot of Samuel L. Jackson roles, and I thought he was great in this. I I thought him and his relationship with DiCaprio was a lot of fun. And mm-hmm. I is it a little over the top? I, I perhaps, but I, I never questioned him in that role. Like I never, it never took me out of it. I felt like he was that character, or I felt he was that age. And especially the back and forth with that of uh, DiCaprio. And I love DiCaprio, too. He, I'm a fan of him for the most part. There are some things he does that that I have not agreed with, like, have, was not the hugest fan of. Like, Aviator mm-hmm. comes to mind. I didn't really love that movie a great deal. Great. Um, Do you like Great Gatsby? Uh, it's okay. It, it's Not to get off topic. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. <laughs> It's okay. I am not. Because I, f- I just feel like with him, not to interrupt, but I feel like some people could make the argument that his character in maybe film A, film B, film D are, are very, very similar. But like, he, like you said at the opening, though, I think Tarantino got something out of him in this one that separates that a little bit from some of those other roles that you might compare it to otherwise. I think there's a certain there are certain similarities with certain of his characters. 
depending like when he tends to play that like they're uh that like playboy rich guy like you with great gatsby compared to aviator i think you can probably cover some similarities but i would say like his role in this is probably closest to that of wolf of wall street where he just gets into that mode where it's just like he does his yell <laughs> yeah yells and just like anything around him it will be destroyed that isn't i, I don't know it's like a force of nature but i know i i like them both i felt like they both worked really well and i thought this was not maybe to the level of Pulp Fiction for Samuel L. Jackson, but one of the better performances he's probably given in a long time. Like, yeah, I, I think it was him playing a character that was out of his comfort zone that I liked seeing. Right. The other thing I wanted to touch on as well was as far as like scenes or moments that stood out the most to you, because I think this also has it's kind of similar to a couple of the movies that we've talked about already. Tarantino can really put together a great opening scene. And the opening scene in this film for me is just impeccable. Like that whole situation with uh, the introduction of all the characters, especially with Christoph Waltz coming in there is just, it sets the tone for me for what probably is my favorite aspect of this entire film, which is Christoph Waltz basically gets, sets himself into situations that you as an audience member, as a, as a viewer have no idea how he's going to get out of. And you're just like, what is going on? And how is he possibly going to come out of this both alive and getting whatever he wants to, to get out of it. He does it at the beginning. He does it at the, um, in the town with the sheriff. Uh, he does it time and time again. And I think it's all set up with that opening scene, which for me is, is just amazing. But do you have a, how do you feel about the opening scene? And is there any other scenes that really stand out as like some of your favorite moments? I do really like the opening scene. It's a again a combination of that comedy and kind of viciousness. That's a lot of fun. And Chris, it's again Christoph Waltz. You know, is it comparable to the to the last movie we talked about? No, but it's it's still really a lot of fun. And uh, especially like the build up with the Django song and everything. So uh, I, I do enjoy that a great deal. I mean, it's interesting. I feel like this movie as a whole, I, I really enjoy. But usually with Tarantino films, there's like specific scenes. I'm like, this could be one of Tarantino's best scenes. <laughs> and I don't necessarily know if that is the case with this movie where it, it's weird though. It's like, it just, it feels like the scenes aren't as elongated as you would expect with a Tarantino film. Yeah. It tends to it moves a lot quicker than that. Like it feels like you don't really spend more than, I don't know, a couple minutes at one location, like, which is different for Tarantino. Usually you're, you're kind of in a room for an extended time. Or yeah, this, but, you know, yeah. St- static for a little bit. So specific scenes don't stand out as much. Yeah, certain ones do. I mean, the brittle scene is one that comes to my mind. Uh, the the dinner scene at the end, of course, and then the overall like just the craziness when Django's trying to gun his way out of the of the house and stuff <laughs> like that. So, but overall, yeah, I, I don't know how if you how you feel if there's like you mentioned the opening scene. If there's uh, other specific scenes that tend to come to your mind, two of my favorite scenes are probably the opening scene and then the, the town scene where he's yeah. he shoots the the sheriff and you're just like, what is what? And my favorite part of that first. A, a part of that scene is that they they're sitting down for drinks or whatever happens and he like basically there's a shooting and then he immediately continues with the inquiry that, that's <laughs> and it's just like what is going on here but i think uh the reason i wanted to bring up scenes was because i think it's interesting that you have this film that has probably one of the the bloodiest shootouts or craziest shootouts with the most amount of people dying, like you said, with squibs and everything else that has ever been seen, or at least, you know, outside of some specific genres that that's all about. But you have that scene, but that's 
even with that, that's not even close to the one of the hardest scenes for me to watch is from a brutal standpoint, which would be both the, quote, Mandingo fighting scene as oh, yeah. well as the dog scene. Like, those are just hard to even stomach watching. And, yeah. <laughs> and, but, and I mean, those aren't even the scenes with all the screen, too, so. Yeah, so I mean, those two scenes step stand out to me as kind of some of the harder to watch scenes, but it's just interesting that, that those are the ones that kind of have more of the effect, even though you have like a thousand people dying in that one scene. So it's something about two guys like fighting to the death in a small room while people like watch. It just feels so weird. It just I don't know. It's it's odd, but it's it's kind of strange when you realize, oh no, that's kind of did happen. That's something that that did actually occur. That was not something Tarantino made up and. uh and right. we talked about last week with, you know, history is a big part of, like, Glorious Bastards because it deals with World War II. But obviously this is, too, and a huge aspect is sil- the slavery. And mm-hmm. how do you feel from a film that has a lot of comedy, has a lot of over-top action, with slavery being kind of the kind of the backdrop of all this, how do you feel he handles that subject matter in, in this? I think he does a decent job of of building a story around it, building you know, the entertaining aspect around it, the humor, like you said, the dialogue, et cetera, without blatantly just doing stuff that was ridiculous to the time period. He does it all in a way that still has elements that are true to the time period, I guess is what the best way, whether it's from the whole idea of um, Europeans or immigrants who came over who were against slavery um, and kind of joined that crusade, which is an accurate thing, you know, which we see with Christoph Waltz's character, whether it be the, the whole plantation setup and, uh, you know, the, the tat, you know, the scarring or the tattooing of, of runaways or, you know, how they dealt with that. So, I mean, I think without going in depth to it a lot and more so having it as like the setting piece of it he does it in a way that shouldn't offend anybody as far as the accuracy of it i don't think if i don't know if that makes sense how i'm saying that but yeah uh, so so i don't i don't really have a problem with it from a historical standpoint i think there are moments in there that you can actually use as like not not that you would use this as a teaching tool or anything <laughs> like that but you could you could point to that and say you know that's that's actually an accurate uh, portrayal of how stuff was happening outside of maybe the whole uh, the whole kkk group <laughs> yeah uh and i think too there's there's a brutality he gets to that and i mean there's a lot of movies about slavery that get into the the cruelty of it but mm-hmm. just like certain elements like the 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 one scene when they're in mississippi and you see the slaves walking with the chains and the mass and like just like that like that image to me is like wow i never saw anything quite like that in a movie before like he seems to have again like the details of the history that some people overlook or you know the fact that when you first we meet Django, it's him literally walking across the forest with no shoes on it's just the idea of like how much these people would have to travel and i do think that he treats it with uh certain even though there is a lot of ridiculousness going on when it comes to slavery i think he tends to get a lot of the details right that a lot of people tend not to do in more serious films so i I always find that kind of interesting well i should put an asterisk next next to what i just said previously because uh in whatever i studied from this time period or or this that and the other i never came across or studied or read about uh any type of uh, mandingo fighting or whatever so i can't speak to whether that was going on or if it was portrayed accurately or not because i have no knowledge of that so uh, someone would have to correct me on that one or 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 teach me but outside of that like you said when it's coming to just the kind of the slavery aspect the plantations and this that and the other 
I think I didn't see anything that stood out as, as something that was blatantly off. But the whole Mandingo thing, I wouldn't be too surprised if it was real or not, considering. I mean, right. I mean, I don't know to what extent or how it happened or, you know, if there was uh, naming and, and contest to that point and trading and buying and stuff. I don't I mean, I know there's movies, obviously, because it's Tarantino that he, he's getting that from. So right. and, uh, it could be more of an homage to that than it is the real history. But either way, it's just it, there's like you said, those scenes are kind of hard. It just uh, finishing <laughs> them off the way he just throws the hammer down like so nonchalantly. It's like, just finish them off. It's like, that just seems, uh, it's kind of well, brutal. I know we kind of talked about the whole last act um, and whether we had, you know, an issue with it or we didn't. What about the specific uh, ending? How did you feel about the exact way that it ends? Did you feel like it fit with everything? Do you feel like it was a rewarding end to the thing? Or I I did. Like I said, I had a little issue with Carrie Washington at the end and the way she, but just the as much as I shouldn't, I enjoyed watching Django getting his revenge. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> especially the way, you know, the viciousness he took out of, uh, you know, Samuel L. Jackson's character and, uh, you know, him yelling at him, saying the D is silent and shooting him in the face. And so, right. I don't know. I thought, I felt it was very suitable in him taking Calvin Candy's clothes and putting them on and everything like that. So it, it worked for me. I, I enjoyed it. Did you have any issues or problems or nitpicks that you would uh, knock this film down at down for for any reason or anything that uh, you, anything you didn't like about it? I think that the one thing, the biggest flaw of the, of the film comes in the fact that kind of the the setup getting into Calvin Candy, what you know they were trying to get accomplished because it seems really convoluted, just their entire mission really. Like, why are they going through all these hoops and everything to to, to get? Kerry Washington's like you know buyers a slave like it seems like uh the justification it doesn't seem to be super strong of like why are they going through all this just to get her I, I know he has that story about going to the farm and trying to buy the cow or what have you but still it just seems like I mean partially maybe it's because maybe he's wrong but it it just seemed that like it was Tarantino wanted to do so. It was the justification was because the, that's where he wanted the story to go. But the actual reasoning behind it seems a little bit like this seems just be, doesn't really make sense to me, I guess. It seems like there would be an easier way, I guess. It's right. like, why, why would you do this? It seems like there should be an easier way to do this. Not just we're going to pretend to be these characters and we're going to get into fighting and then we're going to try to buy black characters, but then we're going to try to throw <laughs> in this other person. It's just like, seems like you they're slaves, so why can't you just try to buy her? I guess then you wouldn't have a movie, obviously. But right, but I, but I agree with you. It does seem like you know why not? If he if he was so intrigued by the amount of money you were going to pay for the other thing, uh, the other thing, geez, the the other uh, object that you're going after, as far as in that sense of the word, um, why not just offer that much for the girl and not go through the charade? Because DiCaprio is basically motivated by money. Yeah, and so then it sets up the whole situation that who cares if they want the girl? Yeah, you're still getting a crap ton of money, so just give it to them. Like it <laughs> sets like up a weird dynamic that doesn't make sense for either party. <laughs> yeah, or like you know her trying to act like she doesn't know him, and, and I, I love the scenes. I think they work, but if if you're like looking at a pl at a plot standpoint, it's like right you really need to do this <laughs> it just seems you might like, be making this harder on yourself than yeah, you need to. yeah go back to body hunting and you're making a pretty good living there i'm pretty sure you could 
buy that farm eventually. So Right, exactly. My my specific issue I think that I had the first time I watched it was this. One of my favorite things initially was, like I said, the idea that Christoph Waltz represents this character who can basically is always the smartest man in the room. He's always one or two steps ahead of everybody. He's always voluntarily putting himself in position that seem impossible to get out of. And you don't know the plan or you don't know how he's going to get out of it, but he always gets out of it. And that theme is carried throughout the whole film. And I love how it, how it kind of progresses to the point where he almost, you know, whether unintentionally or whether just by observation passes that on to Jamie Foxx, because you even have Jamie Foxx towards the end where um, he's being transported and he's in a situation where you think, okay, there's nothing that's going to happen. There's no way for him to get out of this. He's being put in an even worse situation than he was originally. And then you have how he basically gets out of that, gets the guns, you know, gives them to the the other um, people who are being transported and goes back to have his final revenge. So it's even passed on to Jamie Foxx through, you know, through the film but my one issue the first time i watched it was in the whole candy mansion before the the showdown you know you have the 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 epic part of leonardo asking schultz to to shake his hand and that's you know obviously that's the moment where everything changes for the rest of the film and that's when some people probably either jumped off or you know, got on board for the rest of the, the whole thing. My only question and, and kind of problem was that I, I didn't know if it was a hundred percent being true to the character that, that I had grown to learn and love of this Dr. Schultz. And again, this is just on the first time, first time watching it, but for someone who always had a plan out and for someone who always was able to think quickly on his feet to change situations, it, it wasn't, it wasn't even necessarily the fact that, he couldn't just shake his hand and leave. That's fine. I get that. And you know, that he, that he shoots him, but he literally shoots him and then just stands there and allows himself to be shot for the most part. Like you would think there would be a a shot and then he would have some other attempt to do something in his head already, rather than just shoot him and then allow himself to be, to be shot. I mean, I know he, I know at that point he was kind of saying sorry to, to Jamie Foxx, to Django and being like, I got to do this because on principle I have to do this. And now you're on your own. But I just, I don't know. I had a, I had a problem swallowing that the very first time I watched it didn't nearly have as much of a problem the second time, but I, maybe I was just from a personal level bummed that he was out of the film at that point. <laughs> <laughs> I could understand that. I, the way I kind of took that was that, yeah, he always has a plan, and the fact that this was a situation that he didn't get out of, it just drove him crazy, especially to someone like Candy yeah. that he morally can't stand, and it was just, it, it kind of just went over the line for him, so he made they, that they, decision. They do set it up, though, in a way, because you can even see it on Christoph Waltz's face once once they're on to him that you can see the nervousness for the first time. Yeah. You know, you can see him sweating almost for the first time. So it's not that they don't set it up, but I was just like, I still wanted him, even if he was surprised at that point that they, they were onto him for him to come up with at least one more try. And I would have rathered him kind of been killed in some other way as he was getting out of the situation still, instead of just being like, I'm going to shoot him and I'm going to die. But it, it's funny because <laughs> every time, like I heard him say, I, I couldn't help myself. I've always took that as that's Tarantino talking like that. I, I, as a director, yeah. it's like, I can't help myself. I need this crazy action <laughs> sequence. I guess, like, so I never even took it as a character moment. I took it as Tarantino saying to his audience, that. 
it's like, yep, it's time for this to happen now. <laughs> so that's kind of the way I took it. Um, I just I had one more more question before right. we, we wrap it up, and it's inter- We talked about slavery too, but what's kind of interesting is that this sets the record for the most times the N word was used, yeah. which is kind of ridiculous. But and I know even DiCaprio had had issues with it when he was filming. I mean, I know two white guys talking about this seems a little weird, but do you, do you feel like Tarantino does use it to an, an excessive amount in this to, to the point where it does seem like, I don't know, there's almost like he, there's a, a joy he gets being able to use it and get away with it since it's all the time? I, I don't necessarily see it as that. I mean, I think he's he's highlighting something of that setting he's highlighting part of that era part of that moment and and how you know it, it, you got to remember this he's portraying a time period that we can't even wrap our heads around as far as from a language standpoint and from a political correct uh, atmosphere that we are a part of so it's like we can't even kind of come to terms with how that could possibly be. I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, if you lived there, you were going to, you know, in a month's period, you were going to hear that kind of language to that extent, but there's nothing saying that you wouldn't have, especially in the deep South. So I I didn't, I didn't necessarily see it as him just kind of saying, I can do this. So I'm going to do it like crazy. I think he was highlighting and trying to, to really show people and and paint a picture of, especially uh, Candy's character. Not saying that he's the only character that uses it, but he really wanted to pinpoint it. And that's why, you know, when you're reading that stuff about DiCaprio being like, dude, (laughs) am I really supposed to say this this many times? I'm not comfortable with this. Samuel Jackson is right there. (laughs) He's like, dude, yeah, Sam's going to kick my butt. But I I think that's why Tarantino's like, no, this is you have to be this despicable character. You have to be somebody that everybody hates. You have to represent this part of what was going on here. So I think it all had a purpose. I don't think it was just done lazily, not lazily, but uh, half-heartedly or carelessly. I think, I think it had a purpose. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't disagree. It has a purpose. I do feel though. It's like, okay, cut. You can maybe <laughs> bring it. Like, I don't think you need to go for the record. It's like, no, I, I mean, he probably in the, in his mind also did want the record. So <laughs> I, I think, I, I think too, that's him because he's gotten slack from that, from other movies he's done, especially from, I know him and Spike Lee don't get along very well, but I do, I, I do think it's, it's interesting though. Cause I was actually listening to an interview with him and, uh, He's talking about Western directors, and apparently he hates John Ford because he feels John Ford's a uh, racist. Because I guess in Birth of a Nation, John Ford is a uh, proudly in the KKK, so maybe maybe he is. I don't know, yeah, but I, I, I do find like it's like it's not out of character or it's not done in a way that I feel like is without point, like you said. But right. I do just think maybe you could just. It just feels weird when Christoph Waltz says it because I know he's, <laughs> that, that's kind of like he's saying it because he's playing the, the role, but it just seems like. Oh, I thought he'd be the one that doesn't say it. No, <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I just had a couple last minute trivia things. And then I had a couple questions for you to put you on the spot. But uh, the other couple interesting things. Uh, one, I won't get into all the different trivia things because there's a million of them and you can look them up on your own, uh, on your own leisure. But it definitely also follows suit with what we were talking about with Tarantino as far as paying homage to other films in the genre or his knowledge of what came before him. And they are just all over the place from, you know, from silent uh, films to Westerns throughout the different decades. You can probably find a nod to almost every type of Western out there. 
Um, so you definitely get that in here as well. So I think that's kind of cool, especially if you're like a, a diehard genre fan. Um, you could definitely watch this, like you said, two, three, four times and still be picking up on different homages or nods or whatever to the different stuff. So I thought that was pretty cool. Um, I also found it interesting that you have the the dual duality, I guess, of Leonardo DiCaprio saying that he was basing his character partly on Doc Holliday from Tombstone. But that it's actually Dr. Schultz, uh, Christoph Waltz's character, whose character actually almost mirrors the real life Doc Holliday. Because Doc Holliday was a dentist who turned into a gunfighter. Oh, really? Nice yeah. So you kind of have DiCaprio basing it on that, but Waltz actually almost playing that role. So that, that's kind of an interesting thing. And did you know that it was the first Western to win an Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay since Butch Cassidy in 1969, 45 years earlier? Wow. Yeah, I know it's it's only one of the few two that have actually been nominated for Best Picture because, surprisingly, there have not been a huge amount that yeah. have gotten Oscar nominations. First to win uh, an award for acting since Unforgiven in 92, and along with uh, True Grit, because they, they both came out the same year, 20 years earlier, they also had uh, Unforgiven and Dances with Wolves. Or not dances, but uh, dances with wolves and one other western. So, westerns you don't really get a lot of uh, Academy attention. It uh, it kind of comes in little bits and pieces. And I kind of wanted to ask you a question to go along with that. You know, the kind of the state of westerns or what kind of impact Django Unchained had on that. I mean, we've seen a few with with True Grit. With this, obviously, we're going to have Hateful Eight somewhat in the same realm. And we've seen like Slow West this year and a couple other things. And it seems like there's been some gems here and there. But is there are we ever going to get to the point where we get, you know, three, four Westerns in a in a, you know, one, two year period that get a lot of attention? Or are we going to have to rely more on kind of like the smaller films in the indie route to get our Western fix? I don't think it's ever going to get that point. Maybe with. You know, this year with Hateful Eight coming out and uh, The Rever Reverend, which I guess is kind of a Western as well, maybe we will. But I just think maybe you'll get like two high profile Westerns at most every so often. But I think people are kind of scared of them. You get rarely do you see them do well financially unless you have like a big name director behind them. But I mean, maybe you'll see more, you know, with the Coens did True Grit and he did this. Maybe see Spielberg do a Western or you know, what have you, but I, I, I don't feel like it had, if you look at Pulp Fiction, you saw a huge amount of people kind of come after Pulp Fiction and try to do Pulp Fiction. Don't mm -hmm. see that with Django. Because uh, <laughs> period pieces are a lot harder to do. Uh, they don't do as well, so you don't get studios backing them. You get some, like, modern day. You, well, we did have Cowboys and Aliens. We did have Cowboys and Aliens, true. <laughs> and that did not do very well. So I just think the only time we're going to get a high-profile Western is if you have a high-profile director behind it. Yeah, and you did mention money. Um, so we've kind of given you the stats on all the other ones, but obviously uh, this was his highest budget of, of all of his films, production budget of $100 million. Um, and it did have a domestic total gross of 162. So it did well as far as making its money back. Um, quote, put you on the spot here. It came in, I won't put you on the spot for the first one. It, it was 15th overall in its year in 2012 with 162. So that, that was a good enough for 15th best at the box office that year. But um, put you on spot on two different questions or rankings that box office mojo gives us. 
It is the third highest grossing Western, and they're qualifying that as 1979 to present. Um, so they're not counting anything before 1979. Would you have any idea of which two films, which two Westerns made more money than Django Unchained? Man. Oh, jeez. I'll give you a hint. One of them is from 1990, and the other is from 2010. 19, 2010 would probably be True Grit. Yep. That's number two at $171 million. Dances with Wolves? Dances with Wolves is number one at 184. Hmm. So top three Westerns from 1979, present Dances with Wolves, True Grit, and Django Unchained. And then, interestingly enough, the fourth one they have ranked there is Rango. <laughs> <laughs> and then it is Will Smith with Wild Wild West after that. Really? Um, yeah. That's depressing. That <laughs> <laughs> so shows you Westerns don't do well if Wild Wild West is in the top five. <laughs> they also have it listed as the third highest grossing revenge film. Again, only counting 1980 to present. Do you have any idea which two revenge films would beat it? These uh, are a lot harder. Jeez. It's uh, 2000 and 2008. 2008 Taken? Taken is actually number four. Oh, man. Ugh. You probably won't get the one because the one from 2008, they're listing Quantum of Solace as a revenge film. I guess. But I would definitely qualify the number one as revenge from 2000, and that is uh, Gladiator. Uh, I would, yeah. <laughs> so they're listing it as the third highest revenge and the third highest I feel Western. I like there's more movies with revenge. Like it just... <laughs> <laughs> Interestingly enough, Inglorious Bastards is listed as six. Yeah. So they got Django as three and Inglorious Bastards as, as six. Um, and just like to kind Avengers of, has revenge in it. So it's like, yeah, you could talk any, almost any film, you could kind of wrangle uh, some revenge in there somewhere. Um, as far as Rotten Tomatoes, it has 88% as far as the critics go, with uh, almost 250 reviews counted there and an audience score of 91%. So I guess that uh, brings it down to our take on this and our score as far as where we put this. So. What do you think as far as Django goes? What was what, what kind of grade, and how do you go about giving giving it a grade? This is this is hard for me because I've I've been going back and forth with it because <laughs> I I've been trying. I've gone also, back and forth five times in this conversation. Yeah, I've been doing my rankings with Django, and I'm like, where does it fit? And I've kind of had it like up to like number three and number six. It's kind of gone all over the place because uh, I, I tend to really like this movie more and more. And like I said, one of the biggest reasons is is the music. It's the energy of it that I that I love. I it's kind of got like everything I want in a Tarantino film, and uh, so, but I I do have to say that you know that that plot issue is is there. So I think it's the one thing that that I think stops it from being on the same level as his top top echelon. So I would I would still give it an eight and a half, but it's a heavy eight and a half, almost a nine for me. Well, we're boring because <laughs> that's exactly what I was going to give it. <laughs> uh, I, I kept going back and forth between eight and nine, eight and nine. Then I was like eight and a half. And then I was like, ah, maybe nine. And I, I just can't quite give it a nine, even though I probably should. So I agree. It's a very heavy eight and a half for me. So we're completely lame on that respect. Yeah. Yeah. That's okay. It's, yeah. <laughs> and we're then we get to go to, right. then we'll, yeah. we'll do our rankings and I won't even come close to staying true to the actual number score I gave all the films. <laughs> I'm, I think I'm, I'm pretty good. I think for the yeah, most part. I think I'm pretty good too. I, uh, we'll see. We'll see. I'm curious how, how clo close ours will be. I, f I have a feeling they're going to be similar. There's one or two movies I think we were differing from. Yeah. I think there was a couple that we differed on a little bit more. So, but there was quite a few that we were somewhat in line. So, but, before we go, though, one thing we're going to talk about is actually kind of looking ahead, not to next week, but even to later on. And 
you know, we've gotten a lot of positive feedback with the Tarantino perspective so far, so we don't want to keep it going. Unfortunately, Tarantino's not having another movie out until December, so we're thinking about other directors that we could do. So what uh, Kevin and I did is we picked two directors that we feel like we would move on to the next retrospective of, and what we're going to do is put a poll at geekcastradio.com and see which one you feel we should do, and whatever gets the highest votes, and as long as we think, as long as we don't change our mind and go something else, <laughs> we'll end up putting our sights on that for the next retrospective. So it's like we kind of want the people to have some some choice, but then we kind of want to keep control ourselves. Exactly, exactly. I like it, I like it. So but yeah, we got a lot of great, um, great ideas and great people that, that people were throwing out there, and um so some of it comes into maybe some management uh, as far as some of the the bigger names or the people that have been around a long time. I mean, obviously some people have a huge filmography and some people, you know, have very small ones. So uh, kind of weigh that a little bit, uh, or at least I didn't weigh that a little bit. Um, I also like the idea of putting some people maybe that I don't, uh, I'm not as well versed because um, I enjoy also using this as a chance to maybe to to catch up on films that are in my blind spot. So you, you might have some interesting, uh, at least one interesting choice for me, but I don't know, Dan, how did you kind of go about trying to figure out? The first thing I did was I looked for someone that was coming out with a movie this year. That was kind of a key and like someone that stood out. And I also, I looked for the same thing. Someone I personally had a, a, a an interest in, but also kind of blind spot to the movies that I have yet to see. Because with Tarantino, I love doing it, but it's also someone I come in as a huge fan of and someone I've seen all of his movies. I did love rewatching it because I don't rewatch movies enough, but I, I, I sometimes it's fun to have that. It's fun to have that discovery, and especially when I did Spielberg. I ended up watching movies I never saw before, like 1941, Always, which is a movie which I never saw. But uh, <laughs> don't ever watch it. It's awful. But then like Empire of the Sun, which I ended up really enjoying. So I did pick two directors. Uh, I will say, though, that we might do things a little bit differ differently if we pick the ones I have. And I'll get get into them when I give out the names. But that was my biggest goal. Same thing as you, basically. All right. Do you want to uh, go first? Yeah, why not? I I'll go first. And this one is either going to get this. Knowing the other people that do movie podcasts out there my picks either it's going to get half of them excited and it's going to get the other half to not tune into our entire retrospective. If this was the one that was actually chosen. And the main reason I put on, I'm putting this one on there is because it is 100% a blind spot for me. I have not seen a single film from this director. So this would finally force me to watch all these films and, uh, and finally kind of get to, be in on the discussion that everybody raves about. And it might be a little bit of a, of a different pick, a little bit off of the, um, out of the norm. So we'll see, we'll see what people think about it. But the first one I wanted to put up for, for choice, uh, one of the poll choices is actually um, Miyazaki. And uh, because like I said, I have not seen any of the films that, that he's done and a lot of people rave about him. So uh, Hayao Miyazaki uh, was the first one that I came up with. I don't know. What do you think about that one, Dan? Wow. I mean, that, I've seen some, but yeah, there's a lot I have, have yet to see. So uh, anyone in particular that you feel like you're, you'd really be interested in seeing, like that come to Man, mind? That... I've heard so much about almost every single one of them, but especially lately with, uh, with um, what was the one from last year? The Princess Minoke or... Um, that one, man. There's, there's so many. There's, there's, there's at least six. Oh, um, the the one with the flying one. I forget the name of it. Yeah, 
that one. This <laughs> just shows how ignorant I am on on this. Yeah, director. I've seen I've seen Spirited Away, and I've seen Princess Minoke, and yeah, the Howl's Moving Castle, and a couple. But there's a lot I have yet to see. And you know, this is someone who's very much revered and uh, spoken very highly of. So I just thought maybe it would give me an opportunity to venture into a, a type of film that I don't usually get exposed to. And I thought it would be at least a different choice as far as maybe you know breaking up in between something a little bit heavier possibly but um don't worry i have another choice that'll be completely opposite <laughs> so if people don't like that route we can go somewhere else or obviously we go with one of your picks dan yeah I, that's a, the wind wise sorry the written the wind rises was the other one we weren't thinking of sorry about that um <clears throat> wow i did not expect an animated director but that's a that's a good point that's a, interesting i'm just looking at his filmography now and like looking yeah there's a lot i still have yet to see uh, bought recently too. So I was trying to shock you, and I wor- it worked. <laughs> and an- another one of it kind of, I guess this will go with mine. Who he's not an animated director, but he's a director that I think people know, and especially know a lot of his movies. But there's a lot of his films that I've yet to see, especially his early stuff. And I kind of picked this guy for a lot of reasons. One, one of his most infamous movies is actually having an anniversary this year. And also, he also directed a, a movie that was. Uh, one of the first movies we talked about when we, we relaunched our podcast, because it's one neither of us have saw, but Amanda has, and that's What's Lies Beneath. And the director is Robert Zemeckis, uh, you know, the director, of course, of Back to the Future, which is having his 30th anniversary this year. Nice. He's also directed a movie that will be coming out later this year with The Walk, which is the right. taking the movie, the, the Man on Wire, making it into a live action film. But looking at his filmography, there's a lot I have yet to see. Uh, I've never seen his first film, Used Cars or Romancing the Stone. Obviously, who Frame Roger Rabbit and the Max Future films I have seen. Um, but even like Death Becomes Her, I've yet to see. So there's, and with him, my guess is that we would have, because he does have a little bit larger <laughs> of a filmography, um, not as extensive as you would think, but we would probably group the Back to the Future films in one. I was thinking we could even kind of combine all of his motion capture movies into one, too, like, right. like Polo Express, Beowulf, and A Christmas Carol. So a little you bit definitely of, get creative with that one. Yeah. So there's, I think, a lot of room there, but I feel like he has the geek movies, but he also has some more, you know, uh, Traditional films like Forrest Gump and Contact, which Contact is a movie I've yet to see. So a lot of holes in my book in his. I'm no. trying to I'm trying to think because uh, I know I've seen quite a few of his um, of his filmography. I don't I, I don't know if I've ever looked up to see how many I haven't seen, but uh, I genuinely like him as a director. So it would definitely be fun to 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 do that and to see the ones like you said that that i might be missing uh, like you said especially um his his first couple you know i have seen romancing the stone back to the future roger rabbit obviously um forrest gump what lies beneath Castaway, um, matchstick men i really enjoyed um but then i actually haven't seen most of his uh most recent stuff either outside of flight and real steel i don't think i saw there was probably a good eight to 10 films he made in a row that I didn't see. He might not have been director on all of them, but um, it'd be something to look into. That's for sure. All right. What's your next choice? Oh man. I actually have to, I'm still making it in my head. (laughs) Uh, I actually had two circle that I think I'm going to go away from. And the main reason I'm going to do that is kind of to kind of fill one of your criteria that you used as far as being involved with something that's coming out still this year. And I'm going to go with uh, actually my, my fourth and fifth choice. I'm trying to pick between them now. 
I think I'd be interested actually in looking a little bit more at who man I'm gonna go with a guy who has done uh, uh, some foreign stuff that I have not seen and then he's been on a real hit lately as far as uh, making a lot of films that have gotten quite the buzz um, especially um, a couple years ago and the one I'm thinking about is actually I think I've only seen one of his films so it would definitely be another one that's a complete blind spot where I could uh, catch up. And he has a film coming out uh, that premiered at Cannes this year called Sicario um, that I'd be interested about. And that is Dennis Villanueva. And I don't know if I'm saying his name right, but uh, he did Incendies. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Yeah. Um, Prisoners, which is the one I've seen. Enemy, I have not seen. Sicario that's coming out. And then uh, a few early on that are, are more foreign. And then a couple shorts. I don't know if we'd cover those or not. Um, or if we could do them all maybe as one. But uh, it's just a blind spot for me as far as I've only seen one of his films. It's a, it's also represents someone that's uh, got a fairly short filmography. Um, so it would be an easy, quick one to do. Um, and of course, completely different than the animated choice that I had with the other one. So. It's funny because you were saying that. I'm like... Oh, I got to get another choice because the way you were talking and his in the like, I'm like, oh, wow, this is fitting into the guy I was going to pick. Again, a shorter filmography has foreign films and start his career, has a movie that kind of hit big recently. Uh, and uh, that is uh, Guillermo del Toro. And oh, nice. I have, you know, I have yet, I saw Kronos, but it was such a long time ago. I don't remember it. And it's, I have yet to see Mimic, The Devil's Backbone. Uh, I've watched Pan Labyrinth, but I really, really would like to rewatch that again. And of course, he's on Blade Two and Hellboy and Hellboy Two, and most recently in Pacific Rim. But I, I, he's such a huge name in the geek community. I feel like he's someone to go through, especially considering some of his most notable films. I feel like I haven't truly watched because when I watched Pan's Labyrinth back in two thousand six, you know, I was you know in college. I don't think I really appreciated it. So I love to kind of give that like a really a real watch, and especially some of his more notable like horror films from the beginning and horror is not necessarily we talk about all the time. And since this will be kind of bleeding into October, my guess would be It'd be a good time with a uh, Halloween around the corner. So I figured Del Toro again, someone who doesn't only has about eight movies or so, about the same amount of movies as Tarantino. And right. again, it's probably when we can kind of combine his comic book movies into one episode. So maybe it might not be nearly as long. So I figured that would, uh, that would be, that's going to get uh, Amanda's vote for sure. Um, and it's interesting, actually, because this year I've I've watched um, both of the Hellboy films and uh, Pan's Labyrinth just this year already. So um, <laughs> they're definitely both fresh in my mind. But I have not seen his first, uh, you know, probably four or five films, especially the foreign ones. You know, I've seen Blade Two, like I said, Hellboy and Pan's Labyrinth, and I've seen Pacific Rim. And uh, Crimson Peak is definitely probably uh, Amanda's most anticipated film that's still to come out this yeah. year. So and again, he's another one who has a movie coming out this year as well. So, so yeah, I think we're all across the board here. We we're definitely giving people um, some varying directions they can go with this. So yeah, interesting that three out of our four films are foreign directors. <laughs> so yeah, that's right. you know, and then and man. I'm interested to see what people think. Um, you know, I, we might not be going with uh, some of them that everybody wanted us to. You know, I know a lot of people were putting stuff out there like, uh, you know, PTA or or Kubrick or or some of those other ones. And I think we can we can work our way into those. But I kind of wanted to go a different direction after Tarantino and kind of just have some of these more um, 
off the beaten path maybe or or more unexpected ones yeah um, I, again more so ones that we can help or hit our blind spots and like i said like for kubrick i want to I, I don't feel like <laughs> i can watch i can do that yet i want to kind of get, get some more movies under my belt uh he i mean luckily for him he doesn't have a lot of movies either but maybe one day we could do a kubrick retrospective this so, we got a lot of time lot of so time. how are people uh how are people gonna help us pick this and then and when, when, when are we gonna reveal people to people what we're doing next well uh when this movie uh, they can go to geekcastradio.com and there'll be a poll there to vote in and then i guess we can announce our next director retrospective at the end of our next episode when we do our wrap-up episode and we kind of go over Tarantino as a whole. Maybe give out some awards, rank our films, and just give our overall thoughts on the career of Tarantino so far. Yeah, if you've enjoyed any part of this retrospective, even if maybe you haven't caught all the episodes, but you know, you're familiar with his filmography, I think it's going to be a, a pretty fun episode, this next one, kind of going through some... Uh, an actual this sounds funny but a retrospective almost of the retrospective um put a look back at the whole thing and like i said some fun maybe listen awards and stuff like that so I, I think it should be a pretty fun episode plus then you'll get to find out who we're going to be doing with the next retrospective so it's a double win Alrighty, uh, there's a lot of ways to get in contact with us. You can do so by going to Geekcast Radio, emailing us at feedback at geekcastradio.com. We're on Facebook at Geekcast Radio. We're also on Twitter at Cinema Geekcast. And Kevin, what is your Twitter name? Mine is at Optimus Solo. And I am at Movie Revolt. But we'll see you next week as we continue our Quentin Tarantino retrospective. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>